Tone Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. So it's just us two today. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado, and Tim is at Azimuth Audio. Uh, we got another contest going on, man. What's up with that? Yeah, after the success of the hybrid library contest that we did a couple episodes ago, we uh, were approached by the good folks at SoundSnap.com, and they've rebranded uh, and redesigned the website. Uh, Renee, you're not overly familiar with this site, right? No, I've never used them. Yeah, so I'm the exact opposite. I was one of their early adopters, and uh, I've been using the site for a long time. And what I find really cool about the site is it's like having an online library that you can take with you to various freelance gigs. So you're always in the same space every day, Renee, but uh, sometimes I'm in different spots and dragging along my whole sound effects library and installing SoundMiner on the different machines and such can be a pain. So if I'm going to do a freelance gig where I know I'm going to be recording some voices and then doing a, you know, a radio spot that's going to just need a couple sound effects, I can just pop up SoundSnap, log in, pull down the effects I need, and it's like having this mobile library. And the cool thing that they do is they have a couple different ways that you can be a member of the site. So you can just get credits and just pay for the sounds individually as they go. But the way that I do it and the way that we're giving away today is the annual pass. And that is unlimited downloads for 365 days. So you get to uh, just pop it open whenever you need a sound. Because if you're paying by the sound, you're like, you don't want to buy until you're positive you found the right one. Where with the annual pass, you can, you know, you need a monkey sound download four monkey screeches, then pull it up against the picture and figure out which ones work and use different variations and stuff. And you don't have to think about paying for each effect individually, considering it's, they've got over 200,000 sound effects on the site. So for $250 per year, that gets you access to a ton of sounds. And uh, I found it very useful in my work over the past. So I think it's really cool that they reached out to us. So it's three passes. So 365 days of access to the website. You can pull down as much or as little as you want. I don't know why you'd want to pull down a little. That was a weird phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, the way we're going to do the giveaway is we're going to randomly pick a Twitter follower of ours, a SoundCloud follower, and people who have liked our Facebook page. So if you already are doing all those three things, guess what? You don't have to do a damn thing. You've already been entered. If you only follow us on Twitter, feel free to uh, follow us on SoundCloud and like our Facebook page, and then you've got three entries. To find us on SoundCloud, you would search for Tonebenders Podcast. On Twitter, you can find us at The Tonebenders. Not Tonebenders, that's a surf rock band. Don't go find that. So it's at (laughs) The Tonebenders. And uh, like our Facebook page, uh, it's just Tonebenders. You can find that on Facebook easily. So your best bet right now is SoundCloud or Facebook because we don't have as many followers on that as we do on Twitter. So your odds are better. But uh, feel free to join up with all three and you have three chances to win. And it's a pretty cool prize. And if you don't win, please go to SoundSnap.com and support the people who support us. So uh, it's a cool website. Lots of former guests of ours are actually hosts their sound effects libraries there. Carl Anderson has all of his stuff up on SoundSnap. And Rick Veers also has all his stuff up on on, uh, SoundSnap. So the full Blastwave library you can find there, which is a pretty great library. So it's a cool, cool site. Please go check it out. And again, follow us on SoundCloud, Twitter, or Facebook, and you're automatically entered. Cool. So we're going to do the drawing on April 15th. We're going to pick three winners. So be sure to get us followed before then. So the next thing we're going to do is play a little segment I put together a couple weeks ago about recording 
a source with one mic but multiple takes and using the multiple takes to recreate what would be a multi-mic setup. Okay, so today I'd like to discuss a technique that you can use to do what is essentially multi-track recording with only one microphone. If you have access to some sort of sound that you're trying to record that's very loud and very transient, loud transient sounds tend to sound better in post if you put multiple microphones up on them. For instance, you know, gunshots, baseball bat hits, those types of things that are big transient sounds that really excite the space, those tend to sound better with lots and lots of microphones on them. If you don't have lots and lots of microphones, or if you don't have, you know, say an eight channel recorder, there's still a way that you can basically approximate that effect with certain sources. I stumbled across this technique uh, when I was out on a shoot for the Texas Rangers. I had one boom mic on me. It was a Sennheiser 416. And I was waiting for everything to get set up out in the dugout. And they happened to be taking batting practice right out in front of me with no music going, which is rare. Typically, when pro ball players are taking batting practice, the music's pumping and they're all getting ready to go. Well, in this specific instance, because we were about to shoot a TV spot, they had turned off the music, but they were continuing with batting practice behind me. Because I was still waiting for everything to get set up, I saw a real opportunity. So I grabbed my mic and my recorder and walked out right next to the guy and recorded several hits from up close. And then I backed up and moved around um, and got several hits from further away. And they just kept on taking BP. So then I started shooting the reflections up coming off the seats in the stands and, you know, reflections coming off left field and reflections coming off right field. And I would slate all of this as I was doing it. And I ended up with what was essentially about a six or eight mic setup just by resetting my position over and over again across this one repetitive transient sound that was happening in space. And then back in post, I just chopped them up, lined up my transients, and ended up with a really cool sounding set of baseball bat hits that I use basically in all of the Rangers spots to this day. Uh, those hits sound like this. So it worked out really well, and it's a really great proof of concept of what you can do with just one mic and of the power of one mic and a little bit of time. Now, I don't still have my original source recordings from that. I mean, I do. I could go into archives and pull them up, but I think it would be better if I just recreate the whole process here for you guys. So what I've done is I've taken an Omni mic, the Shep CMC6 with the MK2 Omni head, and I just went back into the warehouse with a drumstick. It's got a yarn top and it's just a regular wood handle. And I just started banging on the garage door back in our warehouse in order to illustrate the technique of what we're trying to achieve here. So my first mic position was about six inches away, right up on top of it. Sounds like this.
Then I moved about 10 feet away, still aimed straight at it. Then I moved about 15 feet away and moved off at about a 45 degree angle from the source. My intent was to treat this as a hard left channel. Then 15 feet away, hard right, so I was at a 45 degree angle in the other direction from the source. And finally, I went all the way near the back of the room and aimed the mic at the back of the wall. So I had those five mic perspectives in the can. And this whole process took me, I mean, under 10 minutes to set up and record. Now back in post, I was able to line up the transients, stack them all up, and then run them all through a limiter, pan them around a little bit, and you get sounds that sound like this. Now for comparison, here's my original raw sounds through the same processing, through the same limiter. And then here's the stacked version of the different mic perspectives. So there you go, a straightforward, simple way to expand your mic kit by just spending some time and moving your mic positions, experimenting with different mic positions. Super, super important. Even when you do have lots of resources, when you're dealing with transient things, gunshots, door slams, Anything snappy and cracky that excites space, spend some time and get the reverberations as well. Because, you know, in the end, what happened here was I got something like 25 different performances, but because they're so similar, you don't, your brain doesn't read them as different performances. As the individual sounds get more complex, like it was a big, heavy latching thing, this process would start to fall apart. But if they're simple, short, snappy things, face slaps, any kind of hits, stuff like that, messing around with your mic perspectives and just recording lots of takes, then stacking them up in post does something really, really cool for expanding the way that you can take a single mic and turn it into what would equate to a five or six or seven or eight mic setup. I love that the example that you used was a face slap. I want to hear that conversation now. I didn't, br <laughs> I didn't bring all my mics with me today. So instead of just <laughs> nailing you in the face once, we're going to do it five or six times. I'm just going to move the mics around the room. So just stand still and get ready to get smacked. Bite down on this. It'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, and with gunshots, the, uh, the slight problematic part of it would be the price of ammo. But at yes. the same time... I mean, on a couple of gun, sh gun shoots that I've done, you do end up, you know, you spend all this time, you set up, you fire a few rounds off, and you're like, okay, what's next, <laughs> you know? And um, Well, the other thing, you'd have to balance the price of that ammo against renting a bunch of other mics and uh, recorders with more channels and stuff like that if you were in a position that you didn't already have that. 
Right. So uh, shooting off more ammo is probably the cheaper way to do it in that situation. Right. And, and using multiple perspectives with the same mic. And it also comes down to time and the number of weapons you're trying to cover in any one given shoot. So say, for example, you, you have all day, but you've only got, you know, four or five weapons that you're trying to cover. Well, in that case, even if you do have six or eight mics and six or eight channels of recording, you know, you set it all up, you fire off 20 rounds, and then you reset everything, you know, half a mile away and do it again. Um, and then all of that can add into um, that whole thing. So you can take that that whole process and scale it across multiple mics, but it also works if you just have the one and it works really well. One thing that I that kind of comes from that to me also is that process is an argument for investing in at least one really good mic early on um, because of what you can do with one mic given a certain amount of time. Um, you can make stereo sounds with multiple iterations on a whole wide range of different things. You know, so if you if you have your eye on the one mic, don't wait until you can afford two of them. Get get the one, and uh, you can put it right into use, and you won't regret it. It's the old argument of fast, cheap, or good. Pick two. Right. Yeah. So if you don't have all the money, do it with one mic, but take your time. You can still make it good. Yeah. You know, this it's, it's something that everyone struggles with, and, I, and I've certainly made my share of mistakes with regards to the order in which you build your mic locker. And what I've come, the conclusion that I've come to over time and over learning from my own mistakes is that you should get a cheap to medium range mic of, of every certain type in order to get into the game on certain things, right? Like you should own a shotgun, and if you can't afford the CMIT 5U right off the bat, then get yourself an NTG2, have a shotgun, you know, have that, have an Omni, have a couple of cardioids. Really, you need about that much coverage and you're good. And then as you step up, you skip that whole middle step and you step all the way up to the high end, right? So you you get in the game with something basic and start learning what you're doing with those mics. And then then you save up and then you, and then you, you skip the middle step and jump all the way up to the high, high end. And then you're way good. So that's my opinion of it anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I've done it both ways. So I'm going to speak on behalf of the middle range. Okay. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I skip the low range entirely and just go straight to the, uh, you know, I, I don't own any Sheps, so I don't have any of the super high-end ones. Right. But uh, I have some really nice Sennheisers and some really nice uh, other mics that, uh, but I never, you know, had the Apex or anything like that or... I don't know. What's your feeling on Audio Technica? Sometimes some people think it's the worst. Some people think it's really good. Uh, I I have no real uh, experience with Audio Technica. I don't know how we're getting on this topic, but I'm well, gonna throw we it have forty fifties that we use as our primary voiceover mics all day, every day. Okay, so you're a proponent of Audio Technica. Yes and no. I, I mean, <laughs> I like I like those mics a lot, and they're very uh, they're very versatile and they're very clean. And as far as bang for the buck, they're really really good. I would not put them at the top, top end of microphones, of large diaphragm condensers in the world. With that said, I don't love the sound of a U87 either, so that's me. Um, I think that's too bright. I think the Audio Technica 4050, I like the sound of the 4050 more than I like the sound of a U87, but there are some other mics that I probably like even more. I would love to get myself a, a Microtech Keffel and check some of those out, right? And it also kind of depends on the voice and all of that. Like you said, you have some Sennheisers, but you don't consider those top of the heap. In my opinion, Sennheisers right there with Sheps, even though the Sheps cost twice as much as far as sound quality is concerned, 
I the MKH50 is my favorite mic on the planet right now. That's what I'm recording into right now. I just love, 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 love this mic. So, you know, what I'm talking about, you know, jumping from low range up to the top end, I include the MKH series in the, on the Sennheiser in that, in my opinion anyway. I really like those mics. One way you can tell on how expensive a mic is is on how easy it is to be pronounced by everyone. The way I, like, when it's a name that, like, everyone pronounces somewhat differently, like Sheps, uh, when you first see it, you don't know how to pronounce it. Right. It means it's an expensive mic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Audio Technica, everybody knows how to say that right away. Right. <laughs> road, uh, you know, no problem. <laughs> Audio Technica is a little bit like road, I think, in that it's a highly automated manufacturing process um, that they can get a lot of bang for their buck. They can, and their high-end mics tend to have a lot of quality and their low-end mics tend to fall into crapware pretty quick. Yeah, that makes sense. I would put them about on par with Rode for a lot of things. Not, they're not exactly the same company, but I think philosophically they're in the same spot. Mm-hmm. So back to the uh, piece that we just played of yours. Have you used this technique for anything other than the uh, baseball that you can tell us about? Uh you know, again, I've, I've used it for gun stuff here and there. Um, I try, I, I'm not forced into it so much because I do have lots of different mics, um, you know, at my disposal. So I'm, I'm kind of fortunate in that. But in that instance with the, with the bat hit, for example, I mean, I was forced into it. And when, so when you are forced into it, it's there as an option for you. It's, it's a little bit suboptimal because you, it takes more time. And so, you know, if you if you can just set up a bunch of mics, that tends to be a little better situation. And so, in a lot of cases, I I am and I can, but I ain't scared of it. <laughs> <laughs> I used a similar technique to record. Uh, they weren't Roman candles, but I can't remember what they are. But just simple uh, fireworks that just went boom. Yeah, mortars. Shot. Yeah, mortars. I guess would be what they'd call. And uh, I didn't go to the sides though. That's something that I didn't think of, which is smart of you. I just went further and further back. It was in winter in Canada, and it was an old country road. So I had one where I was a couple feet from it, and then I just you know went back twenty feet, then another fifty feet, and just kept going back down the road. Yeah, I didn't think to go to the two sides and get the stereo width that way. Which now that I've thought about it, seems so blatantly obvious. But at the time, <laughs> well, you know, it's one of those things. If you're if you're planning on your post production process, that'll affect your mic placement, and it'll affect your recording process, right? And For so, sure. you know, the next time you're in that situation, the next time you're out in the frozen tundra with just, you know, yourself and a bunch of mortars and a microphone, then you're going to, you're going to have your post process a little bit more spelled out as far as what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Well, that time I was also, it was the first time that I was recording loud transients. So I just went to the fireworks shop down the street from me. Yes, I have a fireworks shop just down the street from me. It's pretty great. <laughs> um, and uh, I was just like, give me the cheapest thing you have that makes a big boom. And they gave me uh, a bunch of these. So I was just kind of practicing how to place stuff near loud noises because yeah. I don't have access to a gun the way uh, I think you, you, you don't have a gun, do you? But you no, have no I don't, people who have but, I, but I live yeah. in Texas. And so, yeah, so <laughs> it's like, having so you a can gun. trip over a gun on your way to work <laughs> accidentally. Yeah. It's like, you know, going outside is like owning a gun in this state. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, stereotypes. <laughs> You know, but yeah, that situation, I mean, some of the earliest gun shoots I did was that exact same thing where it was like, hey, I have a bunch of microphones and my friends have a whole bunch of guns. Let's go outside and play, you know? 
that was my first vehicle recording too, was, hey, I'm just going to go record my car just because I've never recorded a car before. Let me try and put a bunch of mics on it and see what's up. Yeah, I did um, the same thing with my car. Yeah, it's it's important to recognize opportunities and go rehearse and go practice because you never know when opportunities will come up later on or when necessity will come up later on. Like, for example, this coming week for me, I'm going to go down to Houston and we're going to get to record some Porsche 911 GTs on a track with some pro drivers. Ooh. Yes. And we're not getting paid for it, but we're also not paying any money for it. It's kind of a mutual, hey, you want to go do this? You're going to have access for our media day. And so, you know, the couple of reps that I've had recording vehicles are going to come into play, you know, pretty dramatically when I'm dealing with a car with a pro driver in it that's, you know, that's three inches from the ground going 180 miles an hour. <laughs> so with your microphones with my microphones taped to it <laughs> no big deal no big deal so i went back and listened to our vehicle recording podcast the other day and i still can't figure out how rob noakes mics the exhaust of a vehicle with the u87 like i don't know how he mounts it but um i'm i'm gonna go probably the answer is carefully yeah <laughs> I asked him and I didn't really understand the answer, but <laughs> I think what I'm going to end up doing is going with the PZM near the exhaust and probably also an MKH-50. I've got some Cub ones I've got some Sanken COS-11s that I'm going to use. The Porsche is a really tricky car because, to totally go off topic now, when, when, you're, when you're micing vehicles, you want your, on your onboard mics, you want your air intake, your transmission, and your exhaust, right? Well, on the Porsche, the engine's in the back of the car. So, oh yeah, I never even thought about that. In most regular cars, your engine's in the front, transmission's in the middle, exhaust in the back. Well, in the Porsche, it's all jumbled together in the back. So I'm going to have to talk to some of the mechanics and drivers about where the hell everything is and <laughs> on that car and how the heck I can mic and mount anything in there. So we'll see. It'll be exciting. Okay, future podcast segment coming up. That's right. Awesome. It's coming. So kind of along that same vein of taking advantage of opportunities that you see in front of you, I had a chance to record a building implosion last week, which was really cool. My wife and I were driving home from someplace the other day on a Saturday, and there was signage up on the highway that the entire highway was going to be shut down in both directions at 730 the next day, which was Super Bowl Sunday, which I don't know if they have football in Canada, but... First of all, they do have football in Canada. It's called Canadian football. And it's three downs. Three downs. Yeah. And there's a gray it, cup at the end of it. Exactly. That's right. Uh, we don't have to have a philosophical argument about football, <laughs> but uh, we also get the Super Bowl up here, if you can believe. Everywhere wow. in the world, it's a Super Bowl. Modern technology. And I can't imagine the heartbreak that you and your fellow Dallasites went through. Oh when my the, God, uh, Cowboys we're not even going into out. that. <laughs> the, there, was, there was this domino of calamities that happened in yes, the exactly. NFC all the way down to the playoffs. Anyway, so on Super Bowl Sunday, they're closing the highway down in both directions. And we're like, that's strange. Why would they do that? So we get home, we unpack the kiddo, we're getting ready. And, and my wife looks it up and it turns out they're imploding a building that's right on that highway. And it wasn't at 730 at night. It was at 730 the next morning. And I said, oh, damn, I need to go record that. At this point, it's 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> and on a Saturday night, On too. a Saturday night. So all the mic rental places are open. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, here's the thing. I have all these mics available to me at the office, right? Yeah. The office is about 30 minutes away from my house. 
So what that means is if I, eh, maybe 20, 20, 25 minutes. But if I drive to the office and spend an hour and a half or so putting a rig together and then bring it home, I'm going to get to bed around 2 o'clock and then I'll have to wake up around 6 to go record it with that rig. My other option was just to use my rig that I have at the house, my own personal mics, which is why it's so important to own your own rig and have your own personal mics that you don't have to go to the office and pick up. Uh, So I said, you know what? I like my rig. I'm going to use it. So I got everything together and set it all up in my living room. A couple of uh, Line Audio CM3s and ORTF, my SM7B that I bought to do this podcast with, and a Rode NT5 just because that was a brighter sound that I was going to use for reflections. And I only had four channels. I have more mics than that, but I've only got a PCM M10 and a PCM D50 with which to record. And I have two Sound Devices Mix Pre's that I, that I use at the front end. So I put all that together, set it all up, looked at every stage of my recording chain to make sure that I didn't have a high pass on anything because I wanted to catch all the low end. So I switched off the high pass on all the microphones, made sure it was switched off on the mix pre's, made sure it was switched off on the recorders. There's high passes at three stages of, of your chain and a lot of it. So all those were switched off. All of my pads were switched off. All my limiters were switched off. And um, I set my gain in my house by tapping the mics with my finger. And when I would tap it, I would set the gain to where that was at zero on my preamp. Because if it gets any louder than that, my mic's going to break up anyway. My mic, my mic might be breaking up by me just tapping on it, right? But the last sure. thing I wanted was, and I know my mix pre's are a little finicky with regards to metering out um, when they're about to clip out. So you have to set them a little conservatively anyway. I ended up setting them basically at notch one or two across all of my mics except for the 7B, which was at notch three, right? And so that's kind of how that ended up working out. And then I shot tone from my mixers into my recorders and set those. Instead of at negative 12, I set them to negative 24 to leave even that much more headroom. And the reason I did all of that is because I'm recording at 24-bit and I have it in my head from the car podcast that we did that some other people tend to record hot but try to record hot enough to where they're not going to clip. The problem with an implosion and the thing that I learned when I recorded the implosion of Texas Stadium is that it's louder than anything you've ever heard in your entire life. My experience recording Texas Stadium was, and this was after I had recorded gunfire and been standing next to live weapons being firing, from half a mile away from Texas, from the TNT that was blowing up in Texas Stadium, that was louder than gunfire right by my head. It was crazy loud. It was wow. kicking me in the chest. My, it, it, my wife felt it in my house miles away. I mean, it was seismic loud. Um, and so that's what I was anticipating right, was TNT to be absolutely just nutty, nutty loud. And so, you know, that's what I was trying to set for. So I was trying to give myself way more headroom than I needed. 
And so I went up there. So I had my rig put together. I was totally cool with it. I'm happy about it. I go to sleep. I set my alarm for 6 a.m. I wake up at 6 a.m., throw everything in the car, and then I start driving and trying to scout. And, you know, they're shutting everything down. They've got the minions out in half a mile in every direction of this thing, locking it all down. And so I'm looking for either a place with a clear sight line or a place up high. And, you know, this is in the middle of the big city. So I'm looking for parking garages that I could potentially drive to the top of and get at the top of a parking garage or alternatively any place down low where I can hear some reflections coming off of the other buildings. So I found a parking garage, and when I went up this parking garage, but I couldn't get to the top because it was a residential, so they had gated off the top for all of the residents. And I said, damn it, this is why you go early. Yeah. So I came back down, started scouting around the other side, started scouting back, and eventually I settled on a spot near a news truck. The news guys know where the hell is at. They've got helicopters spotting this thing, right? So I parked next to a news truck, and I get ready to go. I get everything all set up. And I've got, a, I've got a nice, beautiful view of it, nice sight line. Nobody's there. And it's, it's just perfect. And I just, I can't wait. And then people start showing up because the word's out that this building's going to go down. And 30 minutes before the detonation was set to go off, I was surrounded by people. And I was like, I can't record in the middle of these people. They're all going to cheer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Get a nice chorus of, ooh. Yeah. Ah. So I pick everything up, you know, with 30 minutes to go, here I am hustling, you know, picking everything up and I move about, I don't know, 60 or 80 yards to the left out of sight line where I can't see the building anymore and set it all up there. And that happened to me at Texas stadium too. I found a beautiful spot. It was exactly right. I got there early. I'm all set up. And then all of a sudden this crowd forms around me. So the lesson to learn with regards to recording big public events is find ugly sight lines. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> that don't attract crowds. Um, so anyways, I'm 60 or 80 yards to the left and eight o'clock in the morning comes and the uh, explosion goes off. And it's like, it's a surreal, like human event because I can hear it ricocheting off of all of the buildings behind me and up and around me. It was like the most badass, like filmic sound ever. And I looked at my meters and my meters were good. So I was happy with that. And I brought it in to the studio afterwards. And so, I mean, it's that much prep to record what was, I don't know, 60 seconds of sound, something like that. And so I, I get back to the studio, you know, the next day and I bring it all in there and I look at it and I'm a little bummed out because I'd left myself headroom and I left myself a lot of headroom and I felt like I left myself too much headroom because there were certain channels where I was going to have to gain it up by like 20 dB mm -hmm. to, to normalize to negative two. But every time I do that, I'm totally happy with the results when I record it 24-bit. In my opinion, that's kind of the, the way you do 24-bit. And I, I know I'm, other people have different opinions of that. But I think a really good way to do 24-bit is record stupid soft and then gain it all up in post. And it's all there. I know we need to do a test later on, I think, about how far you can push that. But I know 20 dB is fine as far as how much I can gain stuff up. So there's that. I can play the sound. I'll play the sound here.
so even gained up, you know, by 20 dB on almost all of my channels, you know, you still get a big, beautiful sound. You still get big, beautiful tails and all that. There's all this detail is still there. And I ended up being really happy with it. In post, what I ended up doing was I almost went just with the line audios because I didn't like it when I put all four mics up compared to just the line audios and ORTF. But what I did instead in order to kind of make use of the other mics was I dramatically low-passed the SM7B. Cool. So I just basically used that as a, as a thumper, you know. So I dramatically low-passed it and then turned it up until I, until I really liked it. And that added a lot. And then I took the Rode NT5, which was aimed in the opposite direction of the building, which was aimed at the buildings behind me, and dramatically high-passed it. And, it, and I experimented with putting a delay on it just to try and spread it out, but that ended up sucking, so I hated it. So, so I just high-passed it and then mixed it in there, and it ended up just adding more reflection and just kind of more kind of life to it. And, uh, and I ended up real happy with it. I think it sounds cool. Um, is the NT5 the stereo? Or I can't remember. No, the NT4 is the stereo. Okay, so... If, the NT5 is like their single... modular Sheps-style silver pencil condenser. Okay, mic. yeah. Yeah, but I ended up real happy with it. And the, the thing that was uh, surprising to me was that the sound of the building hitting the ground ended up a lot louder than the sound of the TNT with this specific implosion. It was the polar opposite of the way the Texas Stadium implosion went. But the Texas Stadium implosion, the loudest part by far was a TNT. And in the Xerox building implosion, the loudest part by far was the building hitting the ground after all the TNT went off. Um, you know, you can't predict those things. No, but it's still pretty cool. The The thing that I love about your story is the uh, the way you had no plan to do it and you just had to act like that. And you, yeah. you were able to pull it together. And that's the kind of thing that we all have to be ready for because yet you can plan lots of things weeks in advance when you know what you have to get for a film, but it's those sounds that you're like, what is that? Pull out, get a recorder on it quick that you end up, making magic. I was recently on a subway. I had a similar situation. The subway was making sounds that it felt like the floor was going to fall out of this particular car of the subway at any minute. <laughs> and it was terrifying. And I'm with my wife and we're looking at each other and everyone on the train is looking at each other like, should we be pulling some kind of emergency brake or something? Like this is a terrifying <laughs> sound. And I, I'm just coming home from uh, being at friend's house and I was able to just pull out my iPhone and record it and you know, is that the ideal way to record it? No, but I still got some really cool sounds out of it that I'm really happy with that I wouldn't have gotten any other way. And it's going to be a useful sound in the future, too.
Nice. You ever consider that, I think Rode has an iPhone microphone attachment. Yeah, the IXY. They do, and uh, I did not have that with me. It's something that I'd like to get one day, but uh, the, the other thing is, like, my phone is just in my pocket. Yeah. Whereas, I don't know, like, that thing's big enough that it wouldn't really go in your pocket, so then you'd got to have it, you'd have it in your backpack, but at that time, I didn't have my backpack with me. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So... It's definitely something that would be good to have, but I don't know if it necessarily would have helped me in this particular situation. But the point just being, like, have your mics at home, be ready, and uh, when stuff happens, pounce. The IXY, I think, and, and to some degree the PCM D50 have a problem of needing wind protection. Yes. And that really does cut down on the portability of them. And the one recorder that I have that I really, really like for that is that Sony PCM M10. Because it's about the size of an iPhone. It doesn't need wind protection. It's got a battery life that goes for days and days and days. And it sounds it sounds pretty good. So why doesn't it need... Um, I've never actually used the M10. I have the uh, the Sony PCM-D50. Yeah. But what the M10, like the mics are already covered up or... Yeah, there's they've got wind protection kind of built into them. And I guess they're smaller Omni-style mics. They're not cardioid mics. And I don't know, I've taken them out in probably 10 mile an hour wind and they've been totally fine. Wow. You can't go much above that, but you can't take a PCMD50 yeah. outside at all. No. Without wind protection or it'll, it'll go nuts on you. I um, have the, for my D50, I have the Rycote portable mic kit with the wind furry over top of it. Yeah. It works pretty well. You can't get in really high level winds, but it works pretty well for uh, just standard outdoor recording. Right. Yeah, but again, that's it, it requires that one step of planning that kind of takes it away from you being able to have it on that train. Well, I just leave the furry on it all the time. Yeah. But you're right, it wasn't with me. I have that all set up, and again, it wasn't with me. But so. that PCM M10, there's almost no excuse, because it literally... Because it will fit It will totally fit in your pocket. It's the same size as your phone, um, and it sounds good, and it doesn't need wind protection. Well, my birthday's in a couple there of weeks, you go. so I'm going to have to tell my wife what I'm looking for <laughs> for my birthday now. <laughs> you know, along the, the spontaneity kind of line, I was telling the story to my coworkers the next day at the office, and one of them was like, oh yeah, I saw, the, I saw about that. And I was immediately disappointed in him. A, because he didn't tell me about it. <laughs> like, if you know me, mm -hmm. and you know that a building is going to get blown up, your yeah. ass better tell me. <laughs> And B, because I didn't see him out there. So <laughs> do one or the other. Either tell me about it or go out there and record yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if there's like a city like website or something that tells you whenever a building's going to be. Like, how do you get on a mailing list to know when the buildings are being blown up? You know what, what I've learned is that they try and keep it secret, broadly speaking, because they don't want to draw crowds for insurance purposes. So yeah, that makes sense. The ones that are public, they set up big perimeters for, but I've got a Google news alert right now set up to email me anytime to be imploded plus Dallas or scheduled for implosion or any of those things hit the news. Cause this thing was reported in the news. Anytime mm -hmm. those things hit the news, it, it, a Google alert will, will inform me and, and I'll get an email. They normally hit the news after they've happened though, don't they? Depending on if they have to shut stuff down. Yeah, I guess if they're shutting the highway down or something, then they got to tell everybody about it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, and Texas Stadium was one of those too, to where they, I think they had to shut because it was off a highway. Well, that was an iconic thing. I heard about Texas Stadium being imploded like up here in Canada. So like every, yeah, every it was a big news thing. Yeah, it was. It was, it was all over the, our version of ESPN. T 
tsn.ca. Wow, there you go. Someone follows hockey coverage. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, Google News Alerts are really good ways to kind of put that kind of stuff together, to have incoming events happen. Right now, the only one I've got is for implosions. I don't know what other types of events end up getting news coverage before they're going to happen. But, you know, in a big city, you know, buildings are going up and down all the time. So every so often you'll, you'll come across one and have the opportunity. Yeah. And if anyone out there listening hears about a building being blown up in Toronto or Dallas, we expect you to let us know. That's right. Well, you know, the other thing that does kind of start to show up in advance that you can go see are scheduled protests. Ah, Um, yes. Because you have to coordinate groups of people, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, anytime your mayor's, you know, snorting cocaine or something, everyone can go out there. Everyone can, everyone can get together. Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> Hypothetically. You know, you can all get out there and sell, tell them that he's fired at the same time. Um. <laughs> oh, boy. I've got no rebuttal to that. No defense. He's not still your mayor, though, right? No. It, he, yeah, he's out. He flamed out horribly <laughs> because he got horrible cancer. Oh, that's right. He, he was running again, and uh, about a month before the election, he was diagnosed with a whole bunch of stomach and, I think, liver cancer. Wow. Uh, so he dropped out of the race and his brother took over and his brother got his butt kicked. But there you go. Yeah. Sorry. If you don't know what we're talking about, consider yourself blessed. <laughs> but anyways, protests are also things that you could potentially set up a, a Google news alert for with your town. And, uh, you know, if you're into that kind of thing, you can go out and start recording those types of things. Honestly, you know, in my opinion, I think the sound of protests and gatherings and that type of thing is going to be the sound of the coming century. Um, I think a lot of media is going to be made about that. And, you know, the couple of recordings that I did of Occupy Dallas when that was going on around here. And some other stuff. And the, the Sound Collectors Club has a protest theme, too, that's got just some yes. brilliant stuff in it. Um, and man, that stuff, I, I see projects more and more that start to need it and need it and need it. And I think, you know, getting out and recording that stuff as, you know, as much as possible is also very, very useful. So to move on, our last episode dealt with education and it corresponded to the theme over on designing sound. And we interviewed Brenda Jaskolsky, if I can say her name right, Brenda Jaskolsky. <laughs> And, uh, you know, so no, you can't say right. your name. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, we talked a lot about education and that was all kinds of fun. And Tim and I both ended up writing articles for Designing Sound about education as well. My article was broadly about how there are depths to which you can learn things and there's advantages and disadvantages between learning something at a shallow level by following instructions on the internet versus learning something at a deeper level by spending time and experimenting through repetition. And Tim's article. I guess my article felt pretty well received. Tim's article, though, was controversial at least. Um, dun, dun, dun. But, I, but it, I, I really loved it. So Tim's article was about virtual internships. Can you just kind of give us a, a brief overview of what the article was about? Yeah, no problem. The, the article was about the idea of how when, when I graduated from film school and I wanted to work and learn, do an internship, it was fairly easy. There was lots of big studios in Toronto and every one of them at every semester took on a bunch of guys 
And uh, if you want to get your foot in the door of one of those, like you have to pass a few barriers and prove your uh, level of commitment and such. And you also have to do a good job once you got your foot in the door. But it wasn't too tricky if you were one of the people that was dedicated. Where I feel like these days, a lot of those big studios, at least in the city that I'm in and in Toronto, uh, Deluxe is no longer in town. Uh, McClear Pathé, these are studio names that won't mean anything to a lot of people. But the big studios in town are no longer here and they've been replaced by a few medium-sized studios and a couple other different big studios, but they all employ freelancers. There's not the huge staffs that used to all be employed. So to get your foot in the door is much more difficult because they're not all accepting, you know, 10, 15 internships every year kind of thing. So I was wondering how people who are trying to get into the business now can do it. And one of the things I thought that hadn't been explored enough was the idea of a virtual internship. Now, if you use the word internship or mentorship, that seems to be some debate over which was the proper use. But I used internship because Tim Preble had used that as well. And he did a similar program uh, in 2009. And I guess my article is wondering why that didn't take off, why no one else has done it. Or if they have, tell us about it because I don't know about it. So that was the basic premise of the article. So with regards to a virtual internship, like how would you describe that? Like how would that kind of get set up? Well, the way Tim Preble did it, and uh, I spoke to a couple of the people who did his internship, is basically in order to apply, you had to have access, not own, but have access to a Pro Tools rig and uh, some kind of field recording, portable handheld recorder or something. And then uh, basically he would start the internship at the beginning of one of the films he was working on, and he would go through what he did, how he prepped a script, the way he set up sessions and uh, through Skype and uh, email groups, the people who were accepted would uh, follow along and learn and be able to ask questions and interact and uh, basically soak up all the knowledge they could. Now, we should take it aside at this moment and let everyone know that Tim Preble is not doing any virtual internships at the moment. He's at a point in his career where he's doing fewer films and doing more of his own personal work. And so he's he's kind of not doing that at this time. So don't email him <laughs> looking for yeah, one. Yeah, that was one of the side effects of this article I wrote is everyone thought, oh, Tim Preble's doing this. This will be awesome. So apparently he was cavalcated with emails. Right. I didn't specifically say in the article that he did it in 2009 and was no longer doing it. But I assumed that since I said he did it in 2009 and not continued that people would get that. But you know what happens when you assume, Renee? Right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> oops, sorry, Tim. That was my bad. But broadly, this, the question still is, like, why doesn't this happen more? You know, where are these things out there? If you're, if you're new and you're trying to break in, how do you do that, right? I think my opinion of why it doesn't happen more, I think it's hard to quantify the benefits for the person doing the mentorship. Yes. Um, I think there are a lot of benefits for doing that type of mentorship. But I, I think it's hard for an individual to commit to time and curriculum, because in order to do that type of mentorship, you basically have to dream up a program and then you have to interview a bunch of people and decide who you want to spend some time with shepherding through that program. And then, you know, at the end of it, hey, this person might go have a career and that would be great. And hey, this person might not and they might go off into something else. And then you might feel like you wasted your own time. And so I think that's the the primary barrier is... I think the primary barrier right now is making people see enough value in it to invest the, the type of energy in it it takes to execute it. I think one way to probably break that down 
would be to break it into smaller parts, not have it be as big and formal of a thing as what you would call a quote unquote virtual internship, right? So in other words, if there is no program, but if you are still open and available for people to run their work by you or ask you questions or that type of thing, you as a student can start to have a stable of mentors that you're not bombarding every day. You know what I mean? But you're still, you're still able to be in contact with and you're still able to get their opinion of, of their work. And so I think to some degree, it ends up falling back on the student to go find some mentors and then develop a relationship with them as, as human beings and as people and then just start having conversations as opposed to having some more formal thing that's kind of going on. I don't know. What do you think about that? What made me really interested in this topic is, as I said before, when I graduated film school, I did an internship, and it was a very rigid, I got credits for it through my college program, and uh, I went to a studio every day from 9 to 5, Monday to Friday, for four months, and they helped me so much. Now, I got tons of knowledge out of it, but they got stuff out of it too. I ran all their backups for them while they were, uh, while they were mixing, I was running backups. I cleaned out their attic for them, which was full of old reel to reel tapes. And I categorized them and alphabetized them so they could be found. And they were just in stack. So they got concrete things out of it. And whenever they weren't in a session with clients, I would be asking them questions and soaking up everything I could get from them. Now, the ideal is that you pay that forward. Someone helped me get my foot in the door and, the truth is that internship has led me to my entire career. I ended up being hired by that studio and they still hire me regularly as a freelancer now that I'm not on their payroll and the relationship is great. And lots of producers that I met while working for that company are ones that have hired me since then. My whole career is owed to that internship. Right. And I, I would love to pay that forward. But right now I'm a guy who is, I've got my Pro Tools rig I've got a one-room studio that I rent in a building. I don't even have the physical space to have an intern, like, sit and edit something. So it that model that I went through, I can't do the traditional pay-it-forward because it won't work for me because everything has changed. So that's what I wanted to explore, and I don't remember your original question now. Well, the question is... Um... <laughs> <laughs> the question is, would it be okay to be less formal about it and kind of oh, yeah. break it into a, a little less structured, more kind of molecular style thing from the student's perspective, right? Yeah. Well, I think that that's what it's got to be. Like even Tim Prebbles, like it wasn't like a nine to five thing. If you go to his Music of Sound site and just uh, do a search for the term intern, there's five or six blog posts that he's done where it, it's not a nine to five thing. It's uh, when he's got time during the project. So the weeks right before the mix, he's disappeared. He's gone with the wind. But uh, in the earlier parts when he's breaking down the scripts and stuff and he's got more time, he is there with him. So it, it wasn't a rigid thing, but you're right. You, his was more formal than others would be. One thing that I saw recently that I thought was really great was someone went on the sound design group on LinkedIn and said, I'm about to cut my first feature. I've never done this before. Can someone be my mentor through this process? Because I'm going to have some questions. And two people responded within a day. And uh, I haven't heard anything since, which I assume means they're off to the races. And that's a smart way of being able to break it down, saying, I've got this specific thing I need help through. Can anyone offer me that help? Now, it's a little impersonal because it's just casting a super wide net. Right. It'd be more ideal to uh, find someone that you have 
either a city to share with or some kind of foot in the door with them. But most of the time you see people recently graduating saying, this is my demo reel. Can anyone give me a critique? Like there's so many sites that two or three of those pop up a day on. And I thought that that was a, a new kind of twist on it. I've got the project already. I, I just need help to answer me some specific questions on how to get through this process. Yeah. You know, I think the, the two things that, that have to be solved by it are what can the student offer the mentor in terms of value, right? Because mm-hmm. um, in the old days, it was pre-brewed coffee. Well, well, it was it was like your internship, right? Because yeah. you were physically there, you could do things like clean the attic and run the backups and do those types of things. But from a virtual perspective, what types of labor, really, can you invest as a student? One thing that you may be able to invest in a student is file naming, file metadata entry, yes, uh, even field recording, that type of stuff. If you can find someone and strike up an agreement with them to where, hey, Take all your field recordings, send them to me. I will chop them, edit them. I will get metadata on them, send them back to you, packaged up beautifully. Will you critique my stuff in return? If you can do some sort of a bargain like that, then all of a sudden you two will have some common ground. You'll have some stuff to talk about. You will be able to receive critique not only on the work that you're giving this person, but also on the um, on the labor that you're performing for them as well. So things like that, you have to be able to come to the table with a value proposition in order to make a better case for someone to invest their time in what you're doing. Because it's it's a situation right now where these schools are cranking out tons and tons of students, and there are some people that are very, very deserving, and there are lots of people that are not there yet with regards to having put the work in and the time in and the reps in. And as someone that's already in there, I mean, you don't even want to spend the time you know, sorting through everybody to figure out who's worth investing time in. So if you're one of those people that can show up and say, hey, look, I can offer you this, that already sets you apart. And that that makes you more likely to get heard by somebody whose opinion that you respect and that you're looking for. Yeah, that's a smart way to go about it for sure. Trying to think of another offer you could make to somebody, but that's a really good one, the field recordings. Yeah. I mean, because as, as a sound designer, I gain so much by having field recordings. And so if someone if someone were to come and say, hey, I live here, someplace that you don't have access to, I have access to this thing or these things or these, you know, whatever that you don't have access to that would be useful to you. Um, I can make some recordings. I would love to trade these recordings to you for some of your time. Or I would love to trade, you know, my my time and, you know, hacking and editing the recordings that you're making for some of your time. You know, that kind of stuff. It's the way that you can do that type of thing without being in the same physical space. Mm-hmm. But don't ask Tim Preble about this. No. <laughs> He's busy. I'm sorry, Tim. I'm very sorry. <laughs> you know, and well, I get asked this a lot too, right? And I'm sure you do too. Yes. Anyone that's actually paying their rent doing this gets asked all the time. I mean, we get asked enough to where on the main tone vendors website, there's a how to break into the industry thing. And, you know, broadly speaking, in my opinion, mentorship is the way to learn this craft. You know, I For think, sure. I think it's, there are certain things that you really can learn in school on the technical side with regards to how microphones work and how acoustics work and all of that. Signal flow. Signal flow. There are things that are, that are best learned in school, but once you get past those fundamentals, mentorship is what really gets you there as a professional and as a, uh, as a creative individual, you know what I mean? I think mentorship is a super, super important part of someone's development. And I was very fortunate to come into a facility where, you know, I had a mentor basically as my boss who was able to sit and critique my work all day, every day and beat me up for the first five years of my career. (laughs) 
And, you know, and I'm in the position now to where the way I pay it forward is to mentor the new people that are underneath me at the same company. And that takes tons of time and effort and energy. And that's ideal. I think you've said it on this podcast before that, like, if you can get your foot in the door with an internship with a studio, like, you've just hit the lottery. So take advantage yeah. of it. This article that I wrote was not trying to say that we should replace that in any way. Like, that is ideal and amazing if you can get it. It's trying to find something for the people who either that's not available to them or they weren't yeah. picked. And I think broadly the answer to your question of why is this not taken off, why is not everyone doing this, is it's the value proposition on the other side, right, of the people, of the professionals. For sure. What are they getting back to make it worth it from somebody that's not physically in their same space? Well, I guess, and also what I was trying to say was that as much as you don't get as much out of it, we still all have some kind of uh, unspoken responsibility to pay that forward, that someone helped us and we should help someone else. Right. That's getting into the business because... As you say, the internship slash mentorship is where you learn a lot of the meat and potatoes of the business. Yeah, absolutely. That's also kind of why we do the podcast too. We do the podcast to share the things that we've learned and that we know, and also to use it as a platform to ask people that know better than us about stuff that we don't know yet. So, you know, just the simple fact of putting the effort together to record the podcast, edit it, put it together, put it out there, you know, has those types of benefits for me and Tim both that go in both directions. You know, a lot For of people sure. listen to it and learn a bunch of stuff and we get to, you know, call up people with Oscars and say, Hey, you want to come talk to us about what it is that we're doing, <laughs> which is just the most awesome thing in the world. For sure. So put yourself out there with a value proposition. Yeah. And it's also a thing that the people who will excel at an internship are the people who are going to find a way no matter what, that's just the way they found like with Tim Preble's, internship as you were saying off air earlier that Enos Desjardins and Michael Frojic were two of the people that did the original internship and they're both taken off and have great careers now so yeah you could tell that those were those are great interns those two guys yeah. they're good you know we we interact with them you know peripherally and other stuff I guess they're both in the sound collectors club and and some other stuff and you and can just tell Michal was on the show a couple episodes ago yeah so like those yeah. two guys, you know, without Tim Preble's internship, they probably would have had great careers and we still probably would have known them. But, you know, that was a great stepping stone for them. So it's not a make or break thing, but it helped them. And we should all try and those of us who are lucky enough to have a modicum of success in this industry should try and uh, extend that forward because we all stepped on someone's. Uh, no, wait, not. I was going to say stepped on someone's throat. That doesn't make sense. We all had someone <laughs> uh, help us out and we should help someone else down the line. Absolutely. Cool. Your article was awesome, by the way, too. We didn't talk about that at all. You know, my article is pretty self-explanatory. It is. It's, it's, yeah, it, it's self-explanatory, which is good. That's what an article should do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just read your article. I have no idea what you were talking about. <laughs> that would be a fail. <laughs> you know, it's... There's somebody, somebody once said that I don't know what I think until after I've written it down and my article was a little bit one of those things, you know. Um, well, it's one of those things. Sorry, if, back up. If you haven't read it, there'll be a link on our website. Uh, and also you can just go straight to Designing Sound and search through uh, late January was when it was posted. Your article was about different types of learning, the shallow learning versus deep learning and the different ways that uh, those types of learning affect us and how we retain the information as well and move forward with that information. And although you spelled everything out quite clearly, so there's nothing really to debate on it, but it is something that it's one of those things that a lot of it we kind of internally know, but you wouldn't be able to articulate it well. And you did articulate it for us. Yeah. 
I was sitting there thinking about that, that whole concept kind of ended up forming a little bit all at once. I ask myself questions sometimes about what do I really think about this? And then I kind of have to write it out to find the answer. And so that was kind of serendipitous with regards to the designing sound theme and all of that. But yeah, broadly, you know, shallow learning is learning by following instructions, which is a lot of what we do on the internet. This podcast can't do anything for anyone outside of shallow learning. You know, YouTube videos can't do anything outside of shallow learning. And that's fine. Shallow learning has a lot of uses and benefits, specifically speed. You know, you can learn lots and lots of little things and actually get things done just by following instructions. You know, you can you can drive yourself from your house to someplace you've never been just by following instructions. You can cook a recipe just by following the instructions. And you may not know the deep principles of why I'm using, you know, grapeseed oil instead of olive oil on this particular recipe. But you know to use that and you end up getting a good result. Deep learning is you know trying things and failing and then trying again and failing over and over and over again along a narrow range and really learning the the hows and the whys and deep learning has the great advantage of being flexible and being able to overcome obstacles with the great disadvantage of taking a lot of time so you can't have deep knowledge on a wide array of subjects the way you can with shallow knowledge and that was really all it was even saying i felt like spelling it out i guess <laughs> no and i'm glad you did it was a cool article Okay, so again, we're just going to remind you quickly about the contest that we have going on to win an annual pass to soundsnap.com. Follow us on SoundCloud, Twitter, or Facebook, and you're automatically entered. If you're already following us on one of those mediums, you are already automatically entered, but increase your chances by following on all three. And the SoundSnap drawing for three winners is going to be on April 15th, so be sure you get us followed before then. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Stacey Dupass for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at The Tonebenders on Twitter and go to tonebenderspodcast.com to leave a comment. Also check us out on facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast. See you guys next time. See ya. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the ToneBenders on Twitter or find ToneBenders Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at ToneBendersPodcast.com. <laughs>